Awesome. Welcome, Nami. No, I was, I was going to say, like, when we were working through tech issues, you had that uh, that GIF running of this surgery happening from, like, a random ER episode or something like that. And I was yeah. part of me, because of your tech issues with your webcam, I was like, you know, we could just leave that there and it'll just repeat endlessly <laughs> for the whole call. It would be really funny. It'd that be would so, be like, funny. esoteric or some word like that. Like, yes! Yeah. <laughs> It's just so random. It's just so perfectly <laughs> random. Like, why is... Like, this guy is interesting, but why the fuck am I watching, like, this repeated surgery scene over and over? Do you even know what that's from at all? Oh, I... I don't... I'm trying to remember why this was the default. I'm, like, desperate. I don't... I don't know. It feels like was, it's an inside joke from, like, months ago or something 100%. like that. From, right. like, a year ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was an inside joke. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, how, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing swell, actually. Yeah, how are you? Ah, uh, good. Just getting back cracks in there for a second. Uh, uh, brilliant. Well, welcome to the pod. Uh, we can go ahead and well, we can. I, I gotta, I gotta facilitate a few things. So I was thinking about this for the day. I was like, how do I intro this? Like, the easiest intro is that. Um, and this is where I'm gonna be. I might be putting you on the spot, and I apologize, but I'll, I'll carry us through it. Is that having seen you at some of the open mics of the Alliance Theater here in Salt Lake? Um, I have such an admiration for how you are on stage and it appears that you have an incredible amount of like performance experience uh, from improv to acting to stand up. And so between the, um, what is it? The, uh, the uh, insemination um, uh, joke, the, the facility. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about. The sperm bank. The sperm bank. Yes. I, I, yeah. I chose the harder word somehow um, <laughs> between your sperm bank. bit. Facility. Yeah, it's it's that sounds that sounds like it needs some Clorox wipes after afterwards for some reason. <laughs> but between that and then seeing you um, the night that Chuck hosted and how you are with uh, crowds, um, I would say outright like I am a fan of like your work at least and what I've seen for your stand up because how you are with crowds informs me of like what I what I picture myself when I'm in my car of being bold with a crowd and you've you've clearly done like the work where going up in front of a crowd and bombing can occur with a joke. But if you're challenging the crowd, you don't give a flying fuck is, is at least the energy you put out. And it's, yeah, Oh, it's, it's fucking great. Cause now the awkward is like kind of more put onto the crowd member. That's not playing well as a Confederate um, to your, to your bit. And, and you just get to play with that silence and awkward so well that it's just, it's just so much fun. And so like uh, you were just, one of like my top two people here in Salt Lake to like get on this pot as I'm as I'm reviving it. Uh, wow, thank you. Yeah, no. Um, and you're top two just because like you and the other person uh, who is uh, hilariously also um, uh, Spencer. I talked to Chuck about this the other day when he was on uh, for the first uh, recording that I did here in Salt Lake. Um, is that you both are actually like the scariest people for me to pitch for this interview. Not because of like anything you do, but because like the the people that I've created in my head. Um, so I was like, you know what? Uh, I I enjoy the this this line of you you. It's like a King Arthur thing or something like that to his knights that you go to the forest where it looks the darkest and scariest. So I was like, okay, Nami intimidates the shit out of me as this charming, like fantastic performer, and Spencer does for like other reasons we could uh, get into. Um, and I was like, alrighty, well then I, I guess I have my list, my short list of people to interview because Chuck's Chuck and I have gotten to know each other a little bit, so he was a comfy invite. But you, it's just like, alrighty, 
Let's get this. Let's get this. Uh, can you explain like your look actually? Because uh, someone described it the other day, uh, uh, the other like uh, weeks ago, that you have this porno stash, this this aesthetic that you're presently going on. Can you can you jump into that from from, from the amusement of the crowd and me? <laughs> yeah, of course. It, it came from just a fascination of just the the seventies and eighties. I've always had a fascination for it, where it's like my favorite type of music comes from that era. My favorite type of movies mm-hmm. uh, come from that era. And it just so happened that my favorite type of fashion also came from that era. I don't know. I I used to hate mustaches. I used to hate my own mustache. I mm-hmm. remember when I was in like seventh grade, I was growing out this like stash and it was like barely anything. And I was mm-hmm. so insecure about it and I hated it. And so it turned me off from it for the longest time until... You know, just one of these days, I like grew my facial hair out a ton because it, it does that. It is. Oh yeah. It has a mind of its own. Oh yeah. And no. Oh yeah. Yeah. I you you, you would not really. I would not really. I, I, <laughs> if I show you my wedding photos, you'd be like, "Why don't you look like this?" Like it's because it's a look I know I can nail. This look, <laughs> I need to like go back to my my barber that I know in Florida and be like, "Okay, we need to turn all of this into like something presentable." But for like for. For the past two, three years, I'm just like, what's the max out of this bitch? There's something wizard-like about it that I, I greatly enjoy, your look. I, uh, I, I, no one's given me that yet, but I also have a bunch of friends that just fuck with me, like, endlessly. So, like, my wife's a part of that group of people, and so, like, like to, to help uh, frame it, like, when I sneeze, one, it's loud as fuck. Um, yeah. uh, and they always come in two, so it's like a double-barrel shotgun. But without fail... Uh, my friends will basically just like look at me and just like gaslighter. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so, so my wife, if it's just her and me at the house, we're not even online with friends or anything like that, and I'm just sneezing in the corner, like, and she's in another room, I'll just hear gaslighter. <laughs> so I don't, I don't get bless yous, I don't get gazutites, I just get called a gaslighter like at least once a wow. week. What so, is the origin of why do they call you a gaslighter for sneezing? I feel like it's uh, I feel like it's between one of them spontaneous things that people do when they're like pitching for jokes or anything like that. Um just in social settings. It's much more of a social bit that's just more spontaneous than developed out of a story. Like my sneezes are always so fucking loud and a lot of our, our two people that we hang out with very consistently online like just one day, like they just said, just gaslighter. They they just accused me of gaslighting because sneezing is usually, like, <laughs> you know, or like my wife is just incredibly cute, you know, something like stupid, yeah. cute, or silly. And and I love terrorizing her because if you ever meet my wife and she sneezes, the way you terrorize her is like, oh, you cute little pretty little princess thing. And oh. she just would get all grumpy face, like, no, I'm a, I'm a powerful witch Viking. I'm a grown woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So, so either my, my my friend Frank or my uh my my friend Frank or Tom, one of those two, just one day, just like just dry, just everyone's like bless you or whatever, and they're just a like, gaslighter, and then it just stuck, it just fucking stuck, and so I just get I get terrorized as that, and it's it's kind of in line with what my social comedy has been for a lot of my life is that I've always been the person with like potentially the biggest ego in the room, but the way it sort of meets the rest of the room is that. Like I got I like you know how you have different groups of friends or whatnot, yeah. Like your stand-ups, your improvs, or your high school friends that you've stayed in touch with. And the only way I I just 
facilitated by just natural chemistry is that the way I get those groups to like connect and like, you know, bond with each other at social events is that they all just, oh, you also like to shit on Aaron? <laughs> Let us. <laughs> so. <laughs> you, you know what? I actually relate. I actually relate a, a lot with that. It's like the same exact thing for me. It's like when I bring friend groups together, they're just like, oh, you're also fascinated by this like guy that we just met on a whim. So, you, but when you say fascinating, that sounds way more complimentary than shit on Aaron. Like, it's like Nami, he's so fascinating and interesting. Yeah, he's a marvel. Like, he's he's great. Like, that's. I mean, here's the, I do get shit on. <laughs> I do get got... shit on quite a bit. Like, I guess I'm a strange guy. I I don't like normal things. You know, and checks out. Like, yeah, and so people are like, "Why the fuck are you like this?" And I'm like, "Listen, man, I just I." I have nothing to just say. Just start. You want the list? Like, you start pulling out props. I, I start listing off obscure things that I like. You know, random PlayStation 2 games that nobody's ever heard of. And I'm like, dude, have you heard of fucking... Uh, what's, a, what's a good one? Akatsuki Blitzkampf. Have you heard of that? I, I want to say I, I do, but I'm going to like look it up a, real quick. Akatsuki Blitzkampf? Yeah, it's like the, the yeah the last pronunciation of it's like Mein Kampf, but we're not gonna like you know worry about yeah. that right now. <laughs> well, it's actually fascinating. It's a World War II themed fighting game, so it is literally exactly what you think. It's pretty fucking. How well built yeah. is it? Like in terms of mechanics as a fighting game? Amazing. It's actually it's like very beginner friendly, okay. which is like great for like bringing friends over, you know, having them play it, and right. it's like. The controls, I, I I can't believe how solid they are. They are so tight, and they just, like, work. And it's, like, the characters are all so, like, unique and fun, you know? Nice. Is there, I like, a storyline in that game or anything like that? Or is it just, like, because, like, there the character design can, yeah. Yeah, there is a storyline. Uh, it's nuts. Uh, the Nazis of the game are basically the villains. They're, like, uh, we're trying to take over the world. And then you have Akatsuki, who's this, like... I'll admit, Actually, for the sake of the what? meme, I'm a little disappointed that it's not like it. <laughs> Just for the dark humor of it, but keep going, keep going. Uh, Akatsuki is basically Captain America, but uh, Japanese. So yeah. he was a Japanese like soldier that was like frozen, and then he woke up one day and he's like, my one mission is to just completely destroy like the the power source of like what runs this like tyrannical like empire right and, and so, so are like, they so have they maintained like a, historically like even though it's very weird or loose but like the axis allies that was japan and germany like so is he against like the the axis as a whole like the japan government and germany or are they just rewriting history that you know we're gonna write ourselves as the good guys against the nazis in this story or how does that i go? think the i think the main villain is actually part of like the the japan axis okay uh, akatsuki like goes against like all of it basically yeah so yeah he used to work for japan but now he's like fuck you guys i'm gonna destroy everything and yeah quality and it's like akatsuki's very like driven he, he doesn't really have like much lines he's just sort of like i'm just gonna i fucking i hate it I'm he's he's an action-based mc down. basically right yeah, he's yeah. going to tear everything down. And there's a bunch of other characters. It's weird. There's a nun with guns, and her name is Ananim. 
<laughs> I want you to. Is this game on Steam or is it only like on like hard disk oh, PS2? No. Like, it's actually not on PS2. It's actually like a. So it was only released in arcades, but they had a PC port. So you, you have to go to some website, download it, and it wor- It runs pretty well. I already have a friend that, like, when I tell them about this, they're like, can we play that, like, on a stream on a Friday somehow or something? I'm just like... <laughs> right? It, it's, it's a lot of fun. It and sounds like, like a banger. <laughs> pretty easy to get into as well. But, uh, yeah, it's just... That's just one of the many examples of, like, guys, have you heard of this game? It's awesome. And they're like, dude, I'm playing, like, Zelda. It's like, Zelda? How could you? <laughs> How could you be in the zeitgeist? I need you to at I'm, least be 10 years back, at least. I'm not, even, I'm not even trying to be a hipster. It's just something about, like, I don't know, the aesthetics and, mm. like, uh, the sort of vibe back then. Because it's, like, in the mid-2000s, during the like GameCube PlayStation 2 era is when developers like figured out how to make good games, but yeah. they also weren't afraid to experiment wild with it. And so you had yeah. many like series, like mm-hmm. long running series that just got so experimental and weird and awesome. Like uh, one of the first examples that come to my mind is just uh, Tekken 4, okay. uh, which is widely considered like the black sheep of the Tekken series but is my favorite Tekken game just because of how amazing it not only looks or and plays but also feels you know you get into the game and it's just nothing like it like Tekken prior like it's so serious and gritty and cool. like the tone of the storyline is what you're getting everything. at here everything like the main menu has no music it's just like text and it's very like futuristic looking and very like of the time and you you go in and then you go into the character select theme and if you play Tekken 3 the character select theme is like it's like fucking awesome right yeah. but Tekken 4 is like it's very atmospheric it's like super minimalistic on its tone setting which is its own tone choice it sounds like yeah like just because having like a silent like loading screen just like it's just read it like this yeah. is it is such a hard fact in front of you that uh-huh. it actually then your mind has to fill in the rest of the gap basically and i love that aspect of Tekken 4 is your mind sort of fills in these gaps outside of the game and then when you get into the game it's super grounded you know in uh in Tekken 5 you're fighting at like space stations and dreams <laughs> <laughs> but in Tekken 4 you're fighting in like a parking garage an airport you know it just went super uh, minimalistic in like every aspect and yeah, top top of the building as well yeah it's just, well, just classic thing is different yeah classic fighting scenes basically and it's like i if you if you were to ask me like what is the perfect representation of like your taste and vibe uh i'd tell you ridge racer 4 <laughs> and tekken 4 it's fours for some reason for some they, reason they love the, they love to get weird with the fourth game, but I love it. I feel I f- it makes me think about how, because um, you know how like we're kind of plagued by trilogies these days in a way. Um, yeah. Is that once you get to the fourth one, like even Pirates of the Caribbean did this, like the third one is a standard like wrap up, and then you get to the fourth one, like the new Jack Sparrow sub series or whatever after um, World's End. Now it's just pfft, it's just whatever. Like I didn't even see the movie, but my almost impression just from seeing the commercials and theaters uh, was that they just went off in an entirely different weird ass direction with a different love interest set 
and trying to remember what they did in the original Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, I saw a video, epi- I, I actually go back to this video essay quite often, but this guy basically talks about like why Pirates of the Caribbean, the very first one was like so masterful and also why Jack Sparrow was such a powerful, such a wonderful character. And it's because he wasn't the main character like he was in two and three. He was, he was the jester to the main characters. And so he gets to be kind of the truth teller. Yeah. And this and this jester, basically, this comedic relief, but this, like, agent of chaos inside of, like, a very serious narrative. And he also has his own deeper parts that allude to, like, his history. So that just makes, like, that's, that's where Pirates of the Caribbean is, like, a masterpiece of its own accord for, like, all the visual storytelling it did and stuff like that um, and so on. Uh, and I just I just love listening to people, like, break through that those levels of analyses because it, it opens my eyes. And I love I love deep analysis. Just, that sounds so fascinating. And like when you said prior is like that that new direction, you know, mm-hmm. they make a trilogy and it's like tied up in a neat little bow and then it's like, well, what next? Yeah, we want to make right. more money off this franchise. How do we do it? Uh, two yeah. random two random B tier actors no one ever no one's ever heard of. Let's see if it takes off again. Like Yeah. And then when they take a new direction, it can either be like super uninspired and it's like Ugh, yeah, this sucks. Because a new direction is really just the same direction, but with a new coat of paint, right? Yeah. But then yeah. you get like a fucking weirdo, like on the helm, uh, who's <laughs> up to direct this, and he's like, you know what? We're gonna deconstruct like everything you knew about this franchise, and they just go in such a cool direction with it, and such a cool like new energy and then the fans hate it and then they bring it back but that one entry that one entry that was new that was exciting that yeah. did something different is usually my favorite so i've uh, while i was waiting for you to get here because uh, uh you were running late for very good reasons um i was watching this dragon ball z the ultimate review uh this guy totally not mark uh has been yeah. i guess reviewing the series and adding in like these um the Team Four Star boo bits that they've started doing. Um, I don't know if you, you know Team Four Star and DB, DBZ Abridged. I've, I've heard of them. Yeah. yeah. If, so if you want to watch like writing that just progresses like to an astronomically great level, go watch like Dragon Ball Z Abridged. It's like 69 videos, like 15 minutes at the max per episode. And you get to watch these guys that were from like the early 2010s at the beginning of YouTube go from like scrappy shit writing. And they've even got their commentary at it for now that they've been releasing the past few months. Like, so, so in, in, in general, Watching this review, totally not Mark, it talks about the beginning of the Boo saga in Dragon Ball Z, and it's kind of the fourth arc in a way, in terms of, in de- depending on how you want to break up how Dragon Ball then Dragon Ball Z went, a lot of Western audiences started at Dragon Ball Z and not at Dragon Ball. And so Dragon Ball Z goes from like Saiyan Saga, where Vegeta and Goku originally fight, to the Frieza Namek Saga, and then it goes to the Cell Saga, where Gohan like kind of reaches full like MC power for a moment and beats Cell. And then you go to the fourth one, which is where we get to the Boo Saga. And and Ma- Totally Not Mark is sort of pointing out in the beginning of the manga and some of the messages that Akira Toriyama wrote is that he was even excited to try this entirely new direction. It's just that eventually he realizes that because Gohan is such a reactive character, he kind of has to end up pulling in other side characters and eventually bring Goku back. Like something else has to like like Gohan has to be usurped as the main character because how he is, um, because I believe characters take on spirits of their own in the writing, but yeah. how Gohan is as a character as a reactive character makes him 
made him, I guess, too challenging for Akira Toriyama to like write for and turn into a main character, along with however whatever influ- influence the audience had, because you know Goku was now gone and the mantle was was trying to be pushed over to Gohan as the main character of the series. Um, but that's where I think uh, you're reminding me of just in, if if you had any fandom for Dragon Ball or Dragon Ball Z, I imagine you and I, I end up thinking back to when this happened, but that first part where it's trying to do just Gohan as the new main character, it's like, this is like a whole new frontier. Like, where can we go with this? And then eventually it kind of turns into exactly what it's always been, you know? It makes me so sad hearing about that because it's like, this is so exciting. I always knew Gohan was robbed. My my, my friends would tell me is like, you know, Gohan was so cool. And then they just brought Goku back. And it's like, I... I get that it's challenging to write a character like Gohan as yeah. a protagonist, but that dynamic, that new direction is something that is just, I, I'd like for them to take that risk. And I know sometimes, you know, these like big studios and these like people making a show, they're unable to really take that risk. But yeah. when they do, at least me personally, I, I appreciate it a lot more because of that ambition, mm-hmm. you know? That that ambition is everything. Do you like? I don't get the impression you've ever been a fan of Dragon Ball or Dragon Ball Z. Uh, not really. I saw so, a few episodes at a friend's house. Yeah, yeah. No, you're good. Because you want to hear the heartbreaking about Gohan's story inside of the Boo Saga. What is it? It's that. How does this go? Goku shows up. He's only got like a day because of rules of bringing him back from the from the other world because he died at the end of Cell. Yada yada, him and Vegeta fight. Goku attempts goes Super Saiyan 3 and then pops away. Vegeta sacrifices himself to try to kill Boo. Boo's then unchallenged, yada yada. Um and somewhere along the way, Gohan gets basically taken to another planet by Supreme Kai, which is like a new level of the gods. Irrelevant. And Gohan basically trains with this incredibly heavy sword and even breaks it training with his dad or whatnot, and this even older Supreme Kai shows up and trains Gohan even further. Gohan then comes back to Earth to face off, like, this full, powerful Boo that is... Boo's had, like, two transformation, like, a transformation at this point. So he's yeah. more of a character instead of this this, this round, bubbly, wah, 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 you know? Yeah. Yeah. What is it, like, Kid Boo? He goes... How does this go? There's, there's regular Majin Boo that's the big round one, there's yeah. Evil Boo, which is this thinner, brownish-looking one, but uh-huh. that one beats the big one and absorbs him, and so it becomes like this mask, super masculine-looking Boo. It's like you know, like ten feet tall and looks like more dude-like, if that makes sense. More, more yeah. ma- and and then eventually, there's a minor transformation that happens later on in the series, past where I'm talking about, and then he eventually reverts back to Kid Boo. Once like okay. these other parts are taken out of him, and he reverts to his original form, which is Kid Boo, which is just you know, just toddler with nukes, if you will. Okay. Yeah. Um, but what Gohan has happened to him, and which is such a tragedy, and so it pissed me off, because it always pisses me off when they don't let side characters get the win over the big bad evil guy, is that Gohan comes back after that training or whatnot, and he's alive. Go- Goku is still dead, so he's stuck in this other world where the Kais are, uh, where the gods are. And Gohan, without going Super Saiyan, without doing any major power-up or anything is just handing Boo his ass. Yeah. And it's like, oh, he's, he hasn't even gone Super Saiyan yet. And he can go Super Saiyan quite easy. He, did, he went Super Saiyan 2 and handled Cell, 
before whatever plot points you know made that more dramatic and and all that shit. But like yeah. he's normal mode. He hasn't he hasn't powered up. He hasn't even started trying, and he is handling Boo his ass. Damn. And you're just like, this is about to fucking go the fuck off. And then he just basically, how does this go? Um, the the fusion of the two younger children, Goten and, and Trunks, Gotenks, they get absorbed as well as Piccolo gets absorbed by Boo. Boo's now like Super Boo or whatnot, and he just beats the shit out of Gohan and then absorbs him. And then it's back to Goku and Vegeta to like beat Boo is basically how like the rest of the story like plays out. And so it's just, and so it's such a fucking frustration to see someone that is clearly even stronger than the villain and hasn't even gone Super Saiyan yet, even when he was getting his ass handed to him. Like, I guess he got surprised or whatever. And you're just like, this could have been your new main character at several points, but you just couldn't palette the challenge of writing for a reactive character and just letting them be not Goku's kind of character. Because Goku and Vegeta are very active characters. You know, they have they have drives that propel them forward while Goku just like reacts out of like a solemn, you know, demure but honor code and he just he, he reacts to things and that can be fine. It can it can provide for someone that like believes in duty more than like active goals that they're propelling themselves forward, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so sad. Yeah. It's like they, they had this opportunity to do something different and yet they just went back to to how it always was. I, yeah. I guess Hearing about that just sort of reminds me of how sitcoms usually go, you know? It's like, they take it in, like, a really cool direction one episode, but then it just... Reverts. Yeah, it just goes right back. Yeah. yeah. That's that's where I've had an opinion for a long time, that the manga, anime, media... Um, obviously, Dragon Ball Z is not a good example, but it's it always just does stories better, because it actually lets them end. Yeah. You know, speaking of stories that are ending... Cobra Kai season six is going to be the final one. Okay, I I love that show like dearly. Go on, go on. Uh, Cobra Kai is legitimately like my favorite TV show of all time. I don't think any show has as much heart and has completely blindsided me than Cobra Kai because. When I first saw it, it was like YouTube Red season one, uh, Karate Kid continues. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. What the what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, and, and, then thought, you st- and then you still turned it on. You still turned it on. Like, well, I thought it was so stupid, but then I saw the first two episodes uh-huh. and I went, "Oh my god, this is actually kind of tight." And then I binged the whole season in one night, and then I immediately was like, "This is some of the." the greatest tv i've ever seen because it mixes everything i like people fighting and character drama (laughs) that's my that's my favorite things like like complex character drama right yes very complex i i I can see why you never took to dragon ball z because the fighting's there but the character drama is very milk toast and that's and that's the problem i love it when characters are gray uh in in something like that you know Mm. that's one of the reasons why i love tekken because the protagonist ends up becoming the antagonist and then ends up becoming an anti-hero and then becomes the antagonist again (laughs) like you you have these situations where these characters are not 
necessarily good or bad you know they're just people you know they're characters well right? that's that's where we go back to where like the best villains are villains that you identify with because their motivations validate the things that they do yeah like like if that's where if you can if you can understand the rationale for what a character is doing even if they are the antagonist it's just it's just what makes them all the more compelling and complete as a character yeah but here's the thing i feel like even that like villains that you can like understand is sort of getting overdone at least it is in like i don't know more movies nowadays like marvel movies because it's like i miss just like i i'm a bastard and i want to do bastard things i hate all of you I'm okay you know what i you know what i just thought of i thought of draken from freaking kim possible like draken has no <laughs> yeah he has no reason for what he's doing he's just i'm a bad guy with a hot assistant and i want to take over the world like that's all there is and to you, it and you know what that's all you need <laughs> that's, that's all you need for some entertaining television i love bad guys that are just fucking bad right and they just love being bad there's something so like great about that and i love the sympathetic villain as well but you know you see so many sympathetic villains i'm like where's the fucking bad guy i want to kick somebody's ass you know? i i'm almost i want you to so i had heard um i think it's from an, a nerdist little like 10 minute video essay but they were talking about how some a lot of the bond villains um in in the, at least the um the daniel craig um movieography that's occurred in the last you know decade or so the the issue is that a lot of the villains are kind of forgettable like they are bad with like i guess motivations but otherwise they're just they're cardboard and yeah. so i'm kind of sitting here like okay who's a bad guy in, in film movie or otherwise that like fits fits this role that you're talking about because i because i know because i think of the joker from um the dark knight or whatnot uh heath ledger's joker that is that that could be what you're talking about but that character has like very deep like philosophical reasons that he's doing what he's doing. He's not a I, I he, he doesn't sound like the character that you're talking about. I'm just bad for the sake of being bad. Like I'm just a bad guy doing pinky in the brain shit, but that works. Well, well, here's the thing with that because there's a very that's a, I'm glad you brought this up because it's very important. The thing with a bad guy that loves doing bad things is that he still needs to be like a character. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He, he still needs to, you know, have this because what I love is like a villain that's barely sympathetic. And it's like, you know, I, I love being bad. But what's great about a villain, what makes a villain memorable is if they can do things that make them bastards. You know, you, you mm -hmm. love to hate them. Uh, I just get brought back to um, uh, what's a I'm trying to think of a of a good example in my head. Uh, I do love a character like Patrick Bateman, uh, who's uh, that was the Christopher Christian Bale psycho. Yeah, Christian Bale, American Psycho. Yeah, I I love him as a villain because I don't think he's sympathetic. He's an asshole. He's one of the biggest assholes like ever. I mean, he just kills people. I mean, that I feel like killing I, people. I'm thinking of like Hannibal Lecter. Uh, from Silence of yeah. the Lambs. Hannibal Lecter is not sympathetic at all, but he's awesome. He's a fantastic villain. He's a fantastic villain. It's such a great psychological, and he's so intelligent, and he doesn't need that much physicality to, like, intimidate a character like Jodie Foster, let alone us. There's a certain, 
there's a certain play I was like, I don't care how strong you are. This guy's going to scare the fuck out of you. <laughs> some some slasher movies come to mind. Oh. You know, Michael Myers, you know, pure evil. Mm-hmm. You know, the boogeyman, you know, people refer him as. He's literally like evil incarnate. Yeah. You know? Jason, you know, he's like, a little sympathetic because of his past, but man, that dude just murders, murders. After murders. like the after like the second batch of teenagers he kills, they're kind of like, do you do you need to keep going, bud? Like you, you yeah, could, you could set up a pizza parlor. Like we, and, and he comes back alive, and then he kills people again, <laughs> and it's like, Broski, um, can we? We got it. We got the message. We won't have sex anymore. You know. And it's like, God damn it. Uh, you reminded me that uh, I didn't know this, but apparently a lot of the um, the producers or something like that around horror movies are actually like of a of a Christian background. And like once you say it out loud, like that makes sense, like anti demonic, you know, messaging and stuff like that. Um, but and that's just like a fun little piece for for the audience, I guess. But I just that's funny. I I also end up thinking like these days that because of I think this is like this bottleneck occurring. Um, I actually was uh, recording on my phone. I, I've not released it because I guess it was just good practice. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm thinking about like the 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 writers uh, strike that's going on right now, and like you know, there's videos of Brennan Lee Mulligan out there just rallying people with D and D calls and stuff like that. And what I was sort of thinking out loud on this video about is how um, is how unions are at least not not as historically effective as people think, at least by some of the analysis I've taken from other people. But the other thing, but the really big thing I was thinking about is that the death of the big studios is kind of eminent in my mind because the what the internet is providing, YouTube and such, is pretty much allowing for individuals or brands to sort of retake that market share and so there's a part of me there's a part of me that just looks at this strike and I'm like you guys can have the right to to try to use your union um use your voice to you know try to adjust the situation appropriately um and so on but there's a part of me that's also just like I I don't think I have that activist bone in me really um because my my thought is like I don't know I don't understand why no one's not hiring a bunch of these freaking actors right now like I know A24 Studios is like uh, is obliging with with the um with the union with the guild's um terms or whatnot and so they're ma- like a24 is making like radical shit um yeah. is, is my understanding but i'm just also like looking at like it's like we have an army of like twitch streamers and youtubers and to and some part of me just kind of is like some some part of me watches a lot of them and is like how are you guys not maximizing more on like what's available to you for like in terms of like reinvesting into your brand like like I, I think of like Pokemon's not the best example, but she's like a really big streamer, and it's not apparent to me that it's apparent to me that she's a hardworking, disciplined streamer. But there's nothing in my mind that lets me know like she's gonna stop streaming for six months to a year or something like that, or like reduce her schedule to be like I'm gonna hire writers and we're gonna make something fucking awesome, make a horror movie or something like that, and oh. and 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 do something like that and just put it on her own fucking YouTube or whatnot. Um, and yeah. so, and that's what I, that's kind of like my loose thoughts around like what's happening presently is like the big studio is much like big media on the news and politics side. And we don't got to get, go anywhere near that. But, uh, inside the entertainment world, it's like, we have Mr. Beast, all these other YouTubers. And there's a certain point where it's like, at what point do you start hiring these writers 
to just make cool shit. You well, know, Mr. Beast. I feel like Mr. Beast hires a lot of people. You know, for his stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I just, it's just the most obvious example in 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 the in the argument that I'm running. You know. Well, it's funny that you bring this up because this is something that I've always wondered about. You know, these independent creators on YouTube and Twitch because their use. I don't know if it's now. But there used to be this fascination of these like creators to like do something more, you know. Yeah. We gotta make a movie, right? Or we gotta, you know, do something. It reminds me of Smosh. Ooh, ooh, like, ooh. I, I, there's only one. There's one person I just thought of who does movie-like content on YouTube as a part of their regular YouTube thing, and it's Vati Vidya. Who's, oh, I love Vati. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had a bookmark for a while. His most recent one, his uh, part of his like Prepare to Cry series or whatnot. But yeah. I'm just like, this guy has taken Elden Ring, taken writing, taken some artistic work, and he has made like a one hour like masterpiece that like gives you greater weight to the story and like a quest line instead of Elden Ring. But you could go experience and have like a very different, unique experience than this one hour video of the struggles and oh, trials yeah. of going through it. But then you just go through it. And I, I've tried to listen to like other like Americans do their long essays or whatnot, but some of their voices are so bland compared to some of these British voices. I was like, I'm sorry. Vati has just such a sultry, deep voice. And oh, yeah. You, you, you hear him talk, and it's like, please keep talking. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, come on. <laughs> Daddy. Like, like yeah. let's go, man. It, he just yeah. well, he gives such great gravitas to him. And when he gives little comedic moments... It's 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 like a little it's like a little snicker in a library, you know. Like it's intimate. It it is a full laugh, but it's in a library. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, so it's where it, when he when he when he keeps talking and going, you're just like, here's the phone book. Like I saved it just for you. Like <laughs> yeah, it, it's an immaculate vibe. Those videos and like what what I was saying before is like when Smosh tried to make a movie, mm -hmm. you know, it's like they had like all the freedom in the world you know well actually they didn't uh so let me come up with a better example because well yeah uh, but but go well, superwoman okay superwoman is a good example like the the movie uh, or the what are you going at here is superwoman a superwoman, youtuber the, the youtuber okay yeah superwoman because she had that talk show uh late night with lily singh mm -hmm. and uh people didn't like it and what happened was, you know, Lily Singh, you know, she she hired all these writers, you know, for the show. And then it was like, you know, weekly and it was like, oh, this is on TV. This is on national television. But, you know, she was completely fine on YouTube. You know, she mm -hmm. had complete creative freedom yeah. to do whatever she wanted. But now that she was involved with a TV network, a studio, producers, and all of that. It was it was like there was something lost, you know? And and she had this talk show and people hated it, you know? And people hated it for a variety of reasons, but I was mostly just disappointed that it's like why even, you know, breach this territory when you had something so good with YouTube, you know? That's where the stand-up scene, which I, I imagine you're aware of, a lot of stand-ups are realizing that probably from a pure marketing standpoint, putting your special on YouTube does far more for viewership and getting your name out there than Netflix. Cause, and it's so it, weird. It's so weird when stand-up comedians are like, I want to get famous, and then they go to these open mics like, dude, if you want to get famous, 
do fucking TikTok or go do social media. Yeah. That's where you get famous. Well, that's where Ben Brainerd and his like generation of TikTokers from the from the COVID area, like uh, Dan Bam, a uh, local comic here that I've never met, but I've 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 seen him from um the Good the Dan the Florida Man podcast for a while. Like those three, Ryan, uh, Brian, and Dan, or Ben Bra- Ben Brainerd, Ryan, and Dan. Like they, they all got big. They got their big marketing push basically from doing their TikToks of their own of their own kind of fucking shit, um, yeah. and getting back on on the grind for um, for touring. Like when that when that was when the world was opened back up. But like Ben Brainerd had probably one of the biggest sort of news kind of styled. Uh, skit shows with his uh at the table the round table that he had or whatnot and so that's where that's where i even was telling my friend who doesn't do stand-up but he does a lot of twitch streaming i'm like dude you need to figure out how, how to work into your calendar time to like make clips from the highlights of your stream or something because like my if i was going to recommend anyone on anything it's that get away from twitch it has no good payout for you it just it just has this big brand name to it, and which is good if you're already big. I feel yeah, it, you could have a Twitch stream and like get a bunch of subs or something like that. Like there's there's probably there's there's value there to be found, but you also uh, reserve the option to stream on both platforms unless you have an exclusive contract that's giving you you know a a, a bag. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like the biggest issue I have as someone who likes to kind of save everything, like some rooster teeth shit, is that uh, YouTube will save your live streams forever. Twitch will only save your live stream for 60 days unless you're a partner. Oh. Uh, and you see the problem a, there. Yeah. You so s- annoying. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, you know, if, if a hard drive of mine goes out, like, in uh, 61 days and my backup stream, so to speak, was on Twitch, that archive, that backup is gone. Like, but if it's on YouTube, yeah, the MP4 file doesn't have separated audios for, like, my audio and your audio. But I could, I, I can be okay with that as long as I could still go to YouTube and download that that file and be able to do something with it if I had an idea, but the hard drive that it was locally recorded on has, you know, gotten fried or met a magnet at an unfortunate time of the year. Um, So, but with YouTube, between algorithm, learning the algorithm, thumbnail work or whatnot, and also just having something you can, like, use over and over, and it's there forever. Like, there's, and part of my mind for all of the YouTube stuff that I do, there's some part of me, it's like, eventually something's going to, like, catch you know, I'm going to get the thumbnail right or I'm going to get the the timing right. It's like something is going to catch at some point. And then the entire catalog of shit that I've done for, you know, years is just kind of like available to this audience. You know, it's like the tipping point of of the diffusion of innovation principle, yeah, so to speak. Right. So so that, that that's sort of like, yeah, videos. yeah, you start to get like more videos watched. You know, people check out your channel. It's like, what else has this person done? And I feel like that's nerve-wracking because if you do a video that's sort of like out of the norm mm-hmm. and then uh, people check out your channel and see videos that aren't really related, they they might go like, oh, like, well, maybe that was a fluke, you know? And yeah. They just or Well, it doesn't represent like you, so to speak, you know? that's yeah. That's where I'm in a very interesting place because I don't know what the best move is, but like I run and I, I have the 3DMs in a tail improv show which is D&D related improv because it's it's done in this format and you and I both know improv is much more on a stage but I I believe that having the D&D structure makes the improv and it, it, we have consistent fun on that show makes it work better on online and and when you have the D&D aspect to it I don't know if you've really played but those it works 
Yeah. 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 Um, works. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I, I forget. Have you watched any of 3 Dims in a Tale? I don't know if I've told you about it before. Um, I don't know if I have. But you've seen like D&D as a relative improv, like just work online anyway, right? I, I play D&D. My so man. I'm, My uh, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty aware of, <laughs> of the, the innings and outs of it. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I love D&D for character work. You yes. Know, I, I love... I... I sort of have to make some sacrifices uh, because my first character I ever made was such an unbelievable asshole uh, to everyone <laughs> in the team. And I had this whole arc planned of like, you know, the asshole with the heart of gold and he would have won yeah. their affection in the end anyways, but that never happened because I was such an asshole that eventually I just made my character run away. Yeah. <laughs> like from the group and then just replaced it with a new character. <laughs> That's that is that is the funniest sad story to a character that I've actually heard because usually it's like death by farming, you know, like the players like kind of bored with the characters, so let's send them off to die to die by becoming a farmer or something like that. And you're oh, just like, no. no, my character kind of got voted off the island <laughs> because they, he was such an asshole. They locked him in an in a hotel room. <laughs> they couldn't fucking stand him anymore, and they just continued on their adventures. And I was a thief, so I was able to escape the room. But I was like, fuck it. I'm going to write a note that says, fuck you all. I'm going home. And then that was it. I'm going to go home and play with my toys by myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Perfect ending. Right. To the story. But, you know, there, there was so much potential for more, but he was just such an asshole. So I definitely was a bit easier with my next character. Were, 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 were the rest of the players, like... Like, it, it sounds like you guys didn't go anywhere near metagaming, so, like, none, did, did all of your character, Did any of the players understand where you were trying to go with this character? Or were they just, like, kind of just playing into their character, so the, the meta goal, so to speak, of your asshole character was just kind of, like, lost, so, like, their characters just react, don't give any good graces long enough for your character like manifest the heart of gold like how did how did that play out yeah it, it was really that you know i felt like you know the the other people in the group you know they knew that it was a part of the character but because of their characters they were like why would i give this guy any grace he yeah. hates literally all of us <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> just rationalizing it. it's like why are you even here like nami nami exactly. nami, I, nami i get i know what's coming like in three chapters but fuck this guy like yeah like, like i hate him so that's <laughs> i i remember that's literally one of them said i literally i hate him so much <laughs> congratulations nami you your very first character you made reprehensible <laughs> <laughs> there's only there's only up I'm, from here there's only up from I'm here i'm proud of myself <laughs> i'm proud of myself I am proud of myself. I did good. I made a character that people hated. Did I can I uh, w which came first, the the stage performance work or D and D? Oh, stage performance. That's what yeah. I thought because I'm kind of starting both at the same time in a way. Like I did two levels of like set of a uh, sack improv down in Orlando, so I have that bit of of at least improv training, you could say. 
Um, but being on stage stuff is kind of like, I wish I'd have done drama instead of soccer and attempted football. Um, because it just, it's always been more exciting to me. Like I, because of my psychology interests, like the, the, the idea of like getting inside of a character, like to the depth that I hear about, like on Hollywood round table and stuff, um, that is so fascinating to me to be like, how can I actually understand this character like so thoroughly? And then how do I actually, cause I have a tendency towards physicality by my Italian hands, if you can't tell, um, uh-huh. that how do I get that physicality, that energy to just like come out to like be, you know, some, be this character. Um, right. So yeah. like, so like in, in the wrathful Rhapsody, um, which unfortunately we didn't capture a lot of this shit. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's 15 episodes that are uh, on schedule to get released, but um, in this prelude where we weren't recording, um, my character that had gone from Ravsbin to Wrath, like through some untimely attempting to eat his body, <laughs> the the warlord spirit was allowed to take over the corporeal form, while the naive, you know, Luke Skywalker farm boy guy like just gets banished and just taken away by God. So I was a warlord for a lot of episodes, but I had no personality because like at some point I realized like, cause I was talking to my DM about this. He's like, you're not acting like a warlord. You're not being aggressive. You're not asserting yourself. And I, and I was like, I'm being, it's like, I know to be tactical, but like, I need to figure out how to be like, cause it, he's a fighter. I was like, I need to be bar- more barbarianish. Something's off here. And then I finally, cause Chris, uh, my DM had told me like what he knows experienced, players understand about actualizing characters is just give me the base personality and that's like all i that's all they need and then they just yeah. will, can fly into them so to speak very easily okay. And I was like, okay let me work let me do my thing of writing out this character more so that i can process it like write out like a something like a backstory like a couple paragraphs just so i can let that channel out of me and then reflect back into me if you will yes. and and give that personality a bit and Chris then said probably like by the end of the major arc we were inside of, he's like, I've never seen anyone go that flip that hard that fast from like novice to like all the fucking in on like their character. I'm just like, I I needed to write like that's if I've learned anything about my life is that writing allows me to process things so well and so thoroughly that when applied to even D and D it goes from like uninteractive, you know, warlord to like, Let's fucking go! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's gonna one on one this horseman. Fuck him. <laughs> I love it when you know in D and D you are able to just like really let loose. You know. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna change this. Uh, so <laughs> is that a dragon snooting or something like that? Oh no, that's Garfield. Uh, here. Okay, that's, okay, okay. That's Garfield. You, okay, Get here's. It. I see it, but put your head back where it was. Okay, this this kind of looks like like a Muppet dragon, but its head for some reason is poking out of like the left side of a gravestone, and what? it's just oh, you, yeah, like you see it a little. It's a little weird, but like that's what that's what yeah. I was that's what my mind created until you revealed the raisin hater. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's Garfield getting pissed in. Um, but anyways. He's eating. I know he's eating spaghetti, but now it's in my head. Um, <laughs> no, look at it. He's wait. definitely. <laughs> oh no! It looked like uh, weird swallowing spaghetti animation. <laughs> no, he's just getting squirted into. Gross. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyways, what I love about D and D 
is that it really is a time where you can really let loose. And yeah. I didn't realize this, you know, when I first started playing, but the, the true enemy of uh, good D&D is metagaming. Because it's yeah. like, when you are not completely immersed into your character and into this world, and honestly, it takes experience to know, like, how loose, like, you would like r slash wannabe because people will play and it's like can i do this and you're like just do it you yeah know, just stop asking questions and just do the thing one of, one of the most inspiring moments of D for me was at the near the end of this campaign we had this object that was so vital so important to us and we needed to get this object in order to basically beat the campaign Right, And one of our characters was right there at the object, and he was going to go to it, but his character, he got distracted easily uh, by shiny things. Mm -hmm. And so he saw some gold like on the other side of like a huge battlefield, and he went, I'm going towards the gold. And then we were all like, what? <laughs> <laughs> And that's what you need. You need those ringers. You need those ringers. I, I'm i with you on that for especially having seen like myself and others as level one improvisers. The same thing kind of goes into D&D is that if you can think it, then just do it is kind of what your principal, principality should be. I can understand the trepidation for asking questions, but if you have a good DM, one, they never take your agency away. Because uh, that's what I've realized uh, in some 3DM stuff, but also listening and talking to DMs that have been doing it for like 15 plus years, is that like you never remove player agency. Um, yeah. And and for the player, it's like it, it's kind of I think you I, I think you might understand this of teaching people how to go from their subconscious instead of from their conscious mind inside of improv. Yeah. Because one of the one of the things that and I I actually understand this probably better in the area of helping people discuss their psychological or emotions. Because um, uh -huh. what I like to sort of give people as a tool is that I, I like to encourage people to, like, if you have, if you have uh, some scar, basically an emotional scarring, one of the things that I've understood is, especially people that are really, like, kind of reserved about it, is that, like, I'm going to give you room to puke on me right now because you need to start figuring out what the fuck's going on and the, and the best thing I can tell you is to puke on me because, one, I'm asking you to do it, so the consent is there for the mess that's about to occur. Two, it's going to be a mess because you don't know what the fuck is going on in your head and heart. And speaking it out loud might get, just get that hamster off the wheel, and so you can actually like dissect what the fuck the hamster actually is. And yeah. so getting, getting people just in conversation to, especially when they're like in deep emotional problems let's say is like say the thing that's coming to your mind right now because it doesn't need to be true accurate or not hurtful but it's probably the most truthful thing you can say right now in this discovery process we're going through yeah from your gut from your yeah basically from your 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 body yeah you know yeah it, it becomes this absolute electric thing and and that is the basis of improv is that electric impulse to mm -hmm. just say what's on your mind you know your gut instinct because uh you know from my from my work getting people like into improv and getting comfortable with improv one of the most consistent things 
I find is a fear of doing well and a, a fear of freezing, you know? Can you, like can you define the first one? Doing well. Because people who play improv get this idea in their head that they need to do well. They need to be funny. You know, they need to be Okay, quick. okay. So a complex around executing at an optimum, at a at even just an effective level. And yeah. then the uh, and then the other end of that is being is is because I, I was almost hearing that as like what fear of success? What are we talking about with these ego motherfuckers? <laughs> no, it's I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you because okay, yeah. I'm glad you clarified. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I think of one guy we me and my wife had in our level one class, and this guy got in his way so much because he would he was even even watching rewatching our our improv showcase with a friend he even he could sense the energy off the guy through the screen from like five years ago that the guy is tr is clearly conscious while attempting to do the improv he's not just present in the scene he's clearly in his head trying to do something else yeah and it just and you know what oh continue i got i got nothing else go ahead well there is room for the conscious even you know, an improv, you know, that's when you can start planning things and keeping memory of things because, yeah. uh, one of, one of the greatest things in improv is keeping track, you know? Yeah. And when you work entirely off of your subconscious, uh, you tend to forget everything you're saying. <laughs> so yes, true. Like you, you hold on to something and that's, uh, that's one of the greatest things about listening is that when you're not saying anything, uh, you have all the time in the world to record whatever you need to record. And it's like, what people, what I try to teach early on is let loose. Mm -hmm. Let absolute loose. Go crazy. Go bananas. You know, say whatever's on your mind. Because when you're letting loose and saying things that are absolutely like ridiculous, mm -hmm. right? There is room to be able to shave that down and be able to get it to a point where it's like pristine and it's like effective and it works well. Because the sad truth is that if somebody is out there who hasn't done improv before and they're like, oh, I want to do improv, but I feel like I'm going to be bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, don't worry. If you were starting pottery tomorrow, you'd also be bad at pottery. <laughs> <laughs> but being bad at something does not make you a bad person or make you incompetent. Yeah. When you start at something, you are going to be subpar. You know, unless you're just a really fucking cool guy, then that's great. But for like the rest of like humanity, <laughs> you know, the rest of us the have rest, to try. <laughs> yeah, the rest of us have to develop skills, you know, and have to really grind it out in order to get it right. And it's a tough thing because it requires discipline. And some people have that discipline. Uh, some people don't. And uh, discipline is a muscle. You know, the more mm. discipline you practice, the better discipline you get. And so when someone is always in their head, you know, it reminds me of um, when, when I started doing stand-up, I had been writing material for about four months. Uh, I had been 
every day, you know, writing something, writing, 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 just so when I get to an open mic, you know, I use my best material and I'm, and I'm crazy out the gate, right? I'm good out the gate. You know, I don't need to deal with the embarrassment of failing. And what I found out was that when I did my first open mic, when I did stand up, I was barely any better than the guy that just said, fuck it and said what was on his mind that day. Yeah. Because the you you need that experience yeah. of being able to try and fail at something because when you don't have that like when you're constantly in your head and thinking about like, oh, I'm gonna do this and this and this, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? <laughs> something goes wrong all the time and you have to know how to deal with it so i talked to chuck about this on his episode and it's a running theory of mine that there are like between four or five types of comedy and the question i'm going to get to with you is um what value did improv play into into um stand-up because uh my, my theory runs that there's uh the five types of comedy is like improv which is performed on the spot but looks rehearsed stand-up which is rehearsed but looks like it's on the spot um skit comedy which is like you know snl stuff where it's rehearsed it's written it's performed and there's a whole scenery that kind of goes into that basically yeah. and then the one that's the easiest to remember i feel like there was a fifth one but I've, i haven't remembered it so it's it might be diluted anyway but the fifth one is the bait that makes everyone think that they can either do they can do any of the other types of comedy and it's social comedy it's where the people that are funny with their friends think they can go on stage and be funny with a random audience, basically. And so that's, that's like tangentially related to the question I'm asking, which is as someone who had more ex – what was – actually, help paint your resume, your CV for me. You're, I'm not hiring shit right now. I have no money. But what's your what's, – uh, give me like your, your background for like in terms of performance. What was like your first craft, if you will? Uh, well, I – had never performed in really anything um i sung in elementary school for like a commercial so wait <laughs> so you only wait in, in, in a commercial okay i just did like fifth grade not, chorus not commercial it was a news segment actually we, we sung like for like peace and like I on ksl or something or like on yeah, your, okay on KSL. and i was the only one that volunteered because i loved being on camera and so i I sung, and then I felt so happy. I was like, oh my gosh, I sung. People heard me sing. Uh, but I feel like my legitimate performance experience was probably in junior high okay. when the choir teacher convinced me to do Little Mermaid Junior when I was a uh, a freshman. So uh, what does that look? <laughs> like, I don't know what Little, Little Mermaid Junior is. I know Little, little Mermaid. <laughs> Yeah, Little Mermaid Junior is Little Mermaid, but designed for children. So, uh, yeah. Are, are we? Is the Disney version not for children, or is the? Or are we referring to the original original tale of Little Mermaid, where like she sews her legs back together and gets? Oh her yeah, the oh, yeah. I love those. I love grim fairy tales, but um, no. Uh, so Little Mermaid like has music that is sort of designed for like adults that can do great things with their voice, but Little Mermaid Junior is designed for kids that like are still 
you know, Developing. haven't gone through puberty or going through puberty, and they so it's like super toned down and like young in its like young it, focused in its tone or something like that. Yeah, it, it's toned down. It's abridged. You know, there's not much plot because mm-hmm. uh, it's designed for kids. So it's yeah. basically like the, the a, hey, let's run this really quick. Yeah, su- a super simple plot, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I I was scuttled. I was a bird, and uh, I, I I already like this casting. Actually, I already like yeah. this. Actually, and I had my own song with my own backup dancers, and I remember thinking I was so badass, you know, oh, yeah. because I didn't really have any lines. I was in the same part of the stage the whole entire production, but <laughs> I got my own song, and I remember making people laugh on stage, and it was something that I. I really liked doing because I was always, I was always a class clown, you know, in school, you know, I'd always like try to be funny. Yeah. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it failed, but I always tried to be funny just because, you know, I like, I like being funny. You know, I like seeing people smile. You know, it's like ever since I was a kid, I was like, if I could make someone and I swear, I was like five when I thought this. It's like, if I could make someone, you know, forget about how bad their day is, you know, just for a second, you know, I felt like it was worth it. So I wanted to be funny. And um, ever since like my freshman year, I, I did like, I did theater for like four years. Right. Uh, and uh, improv for three. Um, during high school? Talking, during high school? Or? Yeah, during high school. Nice. Yeah. As of right now, I've been doing improv for seven years. Uh, I've been on and off of acting. So what are you, 21 or something? I'm 22. 22? All right. All right. Congrats. You made it this far. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, Improv has always been an an interest of mine. So improv is seven years strong. Stand-up is one year. You know, I started pretty fresh just last May. Uh, I had two logistical questions about the Little Mermaid Junior. How long did the show go for? Like in terms the of the, the length of a show, like one night or what? Like thirty minutes, an hour? An hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, how were you making people laugh as Scuttle with no lines? Like, was it just the song was funny and how and your physicality in the performance, or the song was funny, the physicality? I was pretty much the comic relief. Right. Uh, so. I, I would come on, I'd say some silly line, and then I heard people laughing, you know, I assumed they were laughing at and me. And that just that just that just got you. It just must Yeah, maybe they were maybe they were laughing at a at a fucking bird, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe it was me, you know? The bird on right. stage. Right. Yeah. I it's not a toxic physic I'm I'm jealous of like that kind of storyline stuff or whatnot. And uh, just because um, uh, my wife and I have been out here in, in Utah for like three years. And wow. I came out to Wise Guys. We went out to Wise Guys at least w- definitely when we s- first moved here, like December 2020, I want to say, 2021. Uh-huh. Um, and And it took me until probably a few months ago before I like solved what was my block to go up regularly for stand up. Um, And the very the simple run of it is that whatever I was doing beforehand, my mindset was having me pit myself against both the comics and the audience. But once I accepted or understood that like I need to socialize like 
at least before or at least after with the comics to kind of remove that weird uh that weird idea then Could you elaborate on that like idea i want to like yeah so um so the idea comes from a few paranoia pieces um both from how do i put this <sighs> we could probably source some paranoia from the christian background um and like like small hair pieces or whatnot um mom had a christian background to her and you know the bible was always like at the end of the toilet basically um and 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 also because of um some of my raw takes on like politics culture or such like that um because even at the time i was watching a lot of louder with crowder which was not good for my mental health because oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's just the and and, and, I, and I, without making like a political statement, it's just watching the news that often, even if it has comedy surrounding it, is just not good for you. Because I, I was watching myself like become the basement dwelling, paranoid, you know, conspiracy theory kind of guy, and and so like m one of my issues was that I had these counter culture takes to like at least the the presumed liberal culture. That would be at a comedy scene that at least I framed, you know, um, and so I was afraid I was going to go up there and instantly turn the entire like room, the comics and the audience against me, and I'd be ostracized within you know one attempted open mic, and that was like the ridiculous level of uh, of narrative that I had like created. When in reality, one, most people aren't watching the news every day. Two, most people are actually not nearly as divisive as anyone on the left or right would make you think even if even if most of us would have disagreements about you know pick a culture or political topic uh -huh. and 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 i'd like to in the best version of me i'd like to think that we all could disagree on a bunch of things but if we can maintain like our like core values american or whatnot then like we can progress forward and figure out the rest together you know what i'm saying yeah at the end of the day you know as long as we don't hurt people, I think everyone deserves some respect, you know. Yeah. Just for living as a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 where that that can go into another thing. Um, but yeah, just to keep going with the um, with that. So, so, how do I put this? So one example I could put to how my brain has this weird anxiety, you know, speed up that could just spin it out of control is that let's say uh let's say you know i'm back in high school or single again or whatever like that you know wife dies i get the life insurance money and woo cry in my <laughs> that well, was... <laughs> my love of my life died <laughs> but but it, but it, but i think it i think it occur i think it even occurs with anyone that i find uh, interesting and so what i'll and i'll use attractive and interesting in the same interchange here basically um, because anyone that is interesting to you is by a similar default attractive. It's just that right now I'm going to remove any of the physical attractive elements that we'd throw in for in the, in the sexual department. So, yes. so what my mind would do, and this is why I contacted you and, uh, Spencer Riley, um, once I got done with Chuck, was like, okay, these people are interesting and, and attractive in the same right for, for different reasons and also intimidating, and it's better for me to, in like a bar sense, walk up to the girl and start talking to her and, and get to her as a person before I deify them as this impossible thing. Yes. Ooh, yes. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, and I, 
I could make a guess at like what your interest in people is, but like I I think it's what's, a, what's your guess? My guess is you're gay. Like that's about this. Oh, it, you're not. I love women. <laughs> I feel like you even said that on stage, but it just doesn't take because you're uh, of just your softness as a person. If that makes sense, like you know how to have soft hands with people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I was raised a mama's boy. What can I say? <laughs> I I would say the same thing. It's just that my mom broke. My my mom had me on horseback two weeks before I was born. You know, oh. my mom was a tough bitch. Like she yeah. she knew she knew hard work of a of a different type than other people. You know what I'm saying? Okay. She knew she knew blue collar hard work. She eventually got to white collar hard work, and that's just then that that builds different people. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? But yeah. But yeah, so what was happening inside the comedy scene is that I, I'm creating this paranoia from political bullshit or whatnot and, and having too much of that inflow to where I was even thinking that close friends of mine that I hadn't talked to in like four years were going to like ostracize me all, along political lines when that's just – they're not that radical. I'm just that scared. And right? so, yeah. And so eventually what it really broke down to uh, – let me think about this. I knew I needed to go. I knew I needed to just talk to people. And so it was like one Tuesday at Wise Guys where I was like sitting there. I was like, I could just sit down and like play the work on my notes and like work on my jokes and just sit in a corner and write and isolate myself like I'd done before. Go up, bomb, have Scott Fillmore roast me, and then I don't go back for like six months. Like <laughs> the the fate of every starving comic. Right. <laughs> but um <laughs> um but I was like no, I know what I need to like kind of do here. So I like got up and went and chatted and met uh, Josh. Um, I met I forget this other guy, the guy that always has, has the blonde hair and the mohawk. Oh, uh, Mitch. Mitch, yeah. I, and I'd met him at uh, the Tabernacle um, years ago, and I'd also uh, met uh, Nico, um, who I haven't seen around the comedy scene much. But in any case, I met them, had a dramatic experience, at least in my perspective. And you know, Mitch is just like. I don't give a fuck about like the your your political fufa that you're in right now, dude. Like, just do the fucking art. Like, no one cares. And so, two years later, I finally go out. I wa- I I go and meet Josh. Um, kind of meet Mitch. Uh, talk to Corey. Um, Corey Bay. Um, and just kind of immediately get into what my normal cadence and more, my more, my normal thing as an extrovert is. I am the guy that just is gonna get to know like everyone in the and I did this in high school. I couldn't sit at one table. I just go between like ten different groups of people. And so once I activated that, that was the first night that I was on a Tuesday where, at least for me, we did the main stage at Wise Guys here in Salt Lake. And that was the first time, even though it was ten thirty at night, there's no one in the crowd, I was actually excited to get up on stage. Like I didn't give a fuck if I was gonna do good or bad. I was just like sitting at the end of like the handicap railway, like I, I'm fucking, I'm ready to do this, you know? Yeah, and that means that, great. that means that when I've gone to all the other open mics, I'm kind of either in the back or whatnot, just kind of enjoying the art of watching people suck or nail it. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh-huh. And, uh, and so, yeah, the only, and I've even actually, I have a notebook here to help me sort of journal it. It might, I might publish it one day. But I've basically been lessons in comedy. I've been doing like date and then just yeah. what the journal entry is. Because I was telling you about how I need to write to like process things more thoroughly. Like get the hamster off the wheel and onto the page. So I can, yeah. So 
that's where, you know, the last big thing I learned was that if, um, if I'm at, uh, the Alliance Theater and the, and the lighting is very dark and you can't even see the first row, and I also had, like, a bunch of little notes in my hand, like, I, that was, and this is, like, two, three weeks ago, but, like, I, it put me, like, in a soft panic and I couldn't, I couldn't organize myself because the, and, and this is kind of off the back of that, the day before at the Midway open mic, I had kind of had like my best set to date with like this human trafficking joke or whatnot. But I'd also had, like, yeah, but I'd had like a, a drunk woman that was just sober enough to like engage directly with. So the joke was given more life than what was even conceived. And so when I take it to Alliance and I don't have a crowd, to directly interact with the joke, it's going to fall flat. You know, the classic, like, if you're going to have your peak, you're going to have your drop. And so that's where I had to learn, like, you need to, this is where, welcome back to the lesson of learning how to interact with a crowd that you can only, like, sense or hear and that isn't going to engage with you. Like, like that human trafficking joke, I think, has legs to it, but I have to basically write out more potential for it and then perform and identify what's active about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's one of the trickiest parts of comedy. It's like you go to an open mic and you have all this stuff planned, you've rehearsed it, and then you go up and then I I always say this, if a crowd is a certain way, drop it. You, you can't you can't do what you got scripted. You gotta yeah. you gotta just wing it. Yeah. And it's like I I have seen comics just completely turn a room on its head. You know, an audience will just like, you know, barely laugh at anything. And all the comics that go up on stage is like, fuck you guys, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they go off. And then it's like, you have one comic that goes up there and fucking murders and he gets everyone to laugh. And it's like a completely different audience. And it's like that those moments, you know are reproducible you you can turn any audience like for your favor but it requires work which is why i always say like don't blame the audience because the audience usually isn't the issue you know sometimes you know i i feel like more comics it'd be nice if they understood this but sometimes we're just not funny <laughs> no I, that's I, i'm with you on that and uh, chuck has a really good little uh story about this he has he has two in a way from early parts of his career and also i guess more recently where the first one is where he did the biggest bombing he ever did like in vegas or something yeah. like that with like rodney norman oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah yeah and then when he started like yelling at them like it turned him because now he's like the villain the crowd gets to like laugh at him but i think the most clever one that he did was that he he is that it was like at a wise guy's like a Wednesday or something like that. And he's like, Hey, you need to, can you bump me up? I can need to go to work or something like that. And the guy's like, yeah. And the crowd was just not taking anyone. Just, they were just tense or whatever. And, and, and after getting like moved up the list or whatnot, Chuck just goes up there and just penis and just walks off and it just breaks the crowd. And like, everyone's <laughs> like, everyone's just like down for it now. <laughs> like, like that's his whole set. This is drop in, do that and leave. Like, he's good. And, I'm just, and, and that's what you need. Cause God, you know, I've sat through every open mic I've ever been. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've pretty much never left early. Maybe there was one or two that I had to, but yeah. I always stayed for the whole thing. And what yeah. I noticed about every open mic, because I've learned a lot about what kills an open mic and what makes an open mic great. Right. Uh, 
something that kills an open mic is when you have so many damn comics and then you just have a few comics in a row that are just not funny at all and then the audience starts to get sleepy and we're just like oh god we it's like what have i done <laughs> you know they're like they're looking at their night and meanwhile some guys like screaming into the microphone about like uh having sex with like i don't know some basically an minority. incel topic just yeah, a minority <laughs> group of women you know and they're they're just like the the audience is just like looking at their hands it's like i chose this yeah and you know don't blame the audience because as an audience member sometimes comics are fucking unbearable <laughs> and oh, yeah. it's like you you sit through jesus at a, at a tuesday open mic at wise guys 70 comics yeah it's like god if if the people who stay bravo oh yeah some of the nicest people some of the nicest people they just don't want to go home like <laughs> it's like we have our kids at home i'll deal with this asshole like, yeah no I, I and i'm with you on that because i this is where i'm gonna miss it and i'll and i hopefully will find a way to rediscover it but this is where right now for what i can do for like just going to two open mics or two open mic nights twice a week right now is that I love the Sunday night Midway bar here in Midvale open mic because it is mostly comics usually. Like there might be like a few, like one table or two that might give their attention to the stage. But what I love about it is that is that if the rule is true that if you can get the comics to laugh a little, then the joke might has good potential to it, you know? Um, and if you get the crowd to laugh, that's great. But what I love about that one for how I'm kind of putting my influence on, even though it's Amanda Panda's um, mic that she uh, orchestrates, is that for the comics that I know and that are okay with me, like I have my stack of like purple sticky notes that I like kind of write my bits on, just the bullet point one liner, and then I try to materialize that, is that I'll also just like, I'll just make a sticky note and I'll just like write down like a suggestion. And I'll just like fold and like go give it to the comic. Like take it or leave it. I don't care. If this works, great. If it doesn't, are we surprised? Um, and so I was able to like I gave that to like to Chuck um, like two Sundays ago or something like that because he has he has a joke and one of the jokes he has has a specific medication. And I'm just like I don't know what that medication is for, and that's a critical part of this story. So like explain that, you know. And so I just gave him like what is X medication for? Like figure out like. You need to add that in for this story to like hit better and figure out how that beat kind of works or hits. And he's like, you're right. Like this is, this is actually a really like good idea or suggestion inside of it. And then for other people I know, like yourself or Ricky, like these guys that just have these sets where they just freelance into shit and freelance into story. It's like, you're, you're unicorns to me. Like, I don't know how to bridle you, holster you or to sharp. Like I, because like, cause I know what I I know like because my thing is that I'll, I can sit there and watch someone set and if I can like ha and if ideas are popping into my brain it's like take it or leave it take it or leave it but like yeah but for for certain acts that are just ethereal to how my 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 creativity works it's like 
It's like, do you have any notes or anything you can help me with? And I was like, dude, I don't know what you do. Like, I, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what you do. You're an animal. Like, I can't, I'm, I, I, I'm a mathematician and you're sitting there like, so this, um, I'm a mathematician to what? Like, so this, this baking process that I'm doing where I'm going to turn jello into actual cake. Like, yeah. I might have the wizard beard, but you, sir, are, <laughs> are delivering proper magic on stage right now legitimately it took me a while to find a process i liked because for the first four months of doing comedy i did just uh i had this part-time job uh-huh. where i did very little uh so like the job um, wasn't highly demanding of your attention so yeah okay it, it was uh there was a lot of free time on the job and so i would spend that time uh writing bits and i'd constantly be writing and writing and writing mm-hmm. and i would like have these whole scripts like written but i found out pretty early on that sticking to a script makes me less funny so i sort of just remember it lightly Mm -hmm. and go on from there yeah and which to this day helps a lot and i was doing pretty good you know for four months i even landed like a gig and then i did the gig i was like last and then I, to to put lack of a better term, I got humbled, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was in a room that I was unprepared to deal with, you know, I did all my best bits, but only a few of them actually, you know, stuck the landing. Mm-hmm. And it was that moment on, I, I pretty much, uh, leapt into a comedy depression. Oh gosh. <laughs> I was soul searching and desperately trying to figure out like what what are, what even am I doing with this? Like do I even enjoy this anymore? And you know, I've missed improv because yeah. improv has always been like my love. And it's like in the Salt Lake City area, you know, before the the work we're doing now with um Lord of Misrule, Improv Avenue, Open Improv, I there was no real Salt Lake City opportunities for improv Mm -hmm. you know they were all down at provo and yeah improv broadway and whatnot yeah yeah i don't want to drive down to provo and i hated that i always had to go up to these established improv groups and you know weasel my way in you know like either playing by politics instead of playing by merit or something like that yeah you know i played by politics or i played by money you know have to take like a class in order to get considered to be on the team and it's like what is even i'm i don't like this you know Mm -hmm. why can't i just show what i got and they can tell me yes or no i won't even be offended you know just put put me in a place where i can do what i love put me in coach i want to do a tryout like come on man (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so i had a, a a good period of time where i was just experimenting with comedy and one of the ways I experimented with it was I had a hat and I had some slips of paper. Mm-hmm. And before the show would start, I would have people write down a word uh, and put it into this hat. And then I'd get on stage and I'd take a word out and I'd do a joke or a bit based off that word. And that was pretty fun uh, for a while, but it was uh, it was very hard. and it ended up being so much i guess harmful to me mentally than uh, regular improv because with regular improv i'm not trying to be funny 
uh funny is more just a, a side effect i'm yeah. more focused on like, improv's in, improv's funny as a side effect it's not actually the goal of the, of improv as an art it's, it's a huge misconception yeah yeah, yeah. And, like i was i'm focused on the scene and listening and developing like characters but with this i am trying to make people laugh and that was where i went so so wrong with comedy you know i was talking with a good friend of mine mm -hmm. and he was like why do you do stand-up and i'm like well you know i like people i like making people laugh you know and he's like that's great why do you do stand-up mm -hmm. and i couldn't give him an answer mm -hmm. this this whole time i had been doing stand-up for the the benefit and the uh entertainment of other people mm -hmm. and never had i really considered well why do i do it you yeah know? why do yep. i enjoy yep. it and now you know i've realized that simply the the reason why i like uh doing comedy in general is i like inflicting feelings on people uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> You are a sadistic motherfucker at that kind of I line. Know. That's fantastic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I absolutely adore, you know, having people, you know, just either like uncomfortable or like uneasy or comfortable or they're laughing or they're sad or yeah. I just like making people feel a certain way because when an audience is just apathetic at my scripted material when i try to make them laugh i feel nothing Everyone, feel everyone's dead inside everyone's dead inside or yeah or yeah well, when i but when i really interact with an audience member and put them on the spot i really put them on the spot you know because i love that sly embarrassment right you know i, uh. I love them looking around at their friends being like dude what the fuck do i say and then you know they say something they some of them try to be funny and then they're not and then i just have to like play it off oh, yeah. and like i'm trying to get better at yeah playing it off you know that's that's a skill i can develop and that's something exciting for me is that i am able to work towards something again yeah, because now you actually have like a full-on goal. I sorry for that. I so there's this Irish comic. He's got two specials you can watch for free on YouTube or whatnot, and he's one of my favorite comics that no one knows about. Because one, he's Irish. Um, but I love Daro Breen because both of those specials. He actually has it part of his act where the first row of uh, and people in the crowd, it is an expectation that they will be a part of the show. They will be recurring characters, a part of the show, and 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 what I love about what he does as like a polite person of the British Isles is that he's like, don't worry, I'm not gonna like make fun of you or be like mean to you or anything like that. Like I'm gonna make you heroes. I'm gonna make you grand by the end of this, uh, by the end of this tale or whatnot. So he's got regular bits inside of there, science, religion, what pick that or the other, but he will be referring to the teenager that he had over there, the technician he had over there, the, the the mother over here or something like that. He'll be going back to like these four or five audience members for the duration of the show. And that's like a built-in factor to his show. And it means that it's also almost improvisational conversation. It's kind of bringing that social comedy in with a crowd for like an hour. 
and I love that. and I love that too because I, I I have a lot of things around stand up as as someone that's been listening for a long time and my I just need you know practice, but um, the Canadian um, Indian comic um, Russell Simmons I th- oh, what the fuck is his name um, Russell not Wilson uh, in Canadian comic. The fuck is that guy? Russell Peters. So, oh, your camera's gone. Yeah, my bad. Okay. I'm back. Okay. <laughs> what happened? Uh, uh, no, don't worry about it. A mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so what I so, uh, when Netflix and stuff was newer, is like a few years ago. The the standard thing that Rogan and them would talk about on their pod is that it took a year to make a special, and then they would get you know, produced and published by Netflix or whatnot. And yeah. the, the trio of Tom, Joe, and Bert would be kind of like wishing they had more time. Meanwhile, um, an interview with Russell Peters by like Peterson or someone else, or maybe it was um, uh, from the Eddie Tinty podcast. Um, they interviewed Russell and they were like, it's kind of remarkable how much crowd work you do. And Russell's like, yeah, but that's because I take like two or three years to like really nail down my material and then after that it's free time like yeah. like yeah i do have 45 to an hour of material that like i know is good and polished and i'm comfortable with but that also means that i could take 15 minutes or even 30 minutes it, it doesn't fucking matter to me i can play with the crowd and he's got yeah. that and he's got that a part of him and that's where hearing that seeing what happened with tom segura's most recent special where like his that special is so tight as Joe Rogan always calls it, but it's so clean. Like every word is perfect, every movement, every part of Segura's like um, sledgehammer special is crisp. And I'm a, I'm just sitting there like that's what happens when you take two years to like make a special. You get you get a, it takes a year to like make an hour as like a top tier pro, you could say, and then another year to like really get that bitch tight and nice and clean and crisp, and then. Yeah. If you're like at least how I am as a fan and how you are with like how Russell Peters and Daro Breen are, like then you can just play with the crowd. Like you can actually like have like this very unique experience like every night, not just the uniqueness of this date on this night with this comic doing his hour set of bits, whether he does them forwards or backwards can be like cute or whatever. But the fact that like you're about to be a part of the show and you're gonna be sitting there watching like, you know, this person, this Karen get positively brought into the show and turn into like a, an actual an actual character a side character of this big ass show like that's just that's as unique as improv is as an art form in my mind you know and i love the the brilliantness of that where you know he dana o'brien dara d-a-r-a dara yeah. uh they they really like prep the audience and go like, Hey, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, embarrass you or like make you feel bad because like the, the last thing I want to do at a comedy show is, is shame somebody, mm-hmm. you know, it's not very funny. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, and I don't like shame uh, as a concept and, you know, I, I love just like, you know, having the audience and giving them a time that they haven't had before. You know, yeah. You, you go to an open mic, and it's like you, you hear so many jokes that they often blend together. These faces blend together, and 
I feel like, you know, sometimes comics are worried about time. You know, they're like, you know, I want to try to get all my jokes in before time runs out. And it's like, relax. Don't worry. Don't worry about the time. What you got to worry on is give a good show. Yeah. Enjoy your time on stage. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll be having so much fun with the crowd that I'll have like a minute left for my written material. And I'll be like, oh, shit. (laughs) I'll just like, I'll do what I can. And then I'll just go. I, I had fun because, you know, the it was the experience that was fun for me you know yeah it was less so like getting like all my jokes in because yeah or your jokes providing the laugh and having that sort of almost a masturbatory payoff yeah if depending on how you frame it of course but like there's if your focus is i need to get these we're talking about joke writing dear don't side eye me with your bullshit (laughs) (laughs) but um but there, there, in the framing that you're providing, there is some people that might, the comics that might be over focused on. I need to deliver these jokes, and people need to laugh for like all of my, all of the validation to come through. And it's like that, 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 that feels so far away from like the actual, the art form, at least as I envision it, is that like you're trying to go up there and present these, these premises, these ideas, and find where the punchlines or the beats are. It's yeah. it's an art form of spoken word that just has a beat that isn't in a rhythm like poetry or songs are. Right. And, and to be fair, you know, everyone has a has a different vision of stand up, right? Yeah. I, I feel like you and me, we, we look at it very artistically and some people may just look at it as, you know, monetarily because they're fucking psychopaths. <laughs> and, you know Or they're survivalists, uh, they're people that just need to survive so they haven't they haven't been able to you know, have higher thoughts. That's something I struggled with because, you know, at the beginning of like my comedy journey, I was like, you know, I, I could, I want to, you know, make this my career someday. And by the end I was like, I'm, I think I'm fine keeping it as a hobby because Mm -hmm. it was the, the art form that, that really gravitated towards me. The, the art of funny, you know, how do you, make people laugh it's something so fascinating to me and And so ethereal yeah yeah seeing all the different techniques and things that people do because you know it's strange it's not something that is easily taught you know how do you craft the joke how do you deliver timing you know yeah it's it's something that you often just feel you know yeah I, I think this is where, because me and Chuck got into this a bit um, on when, when we when he was over on Sunday, uh, is that we actually started like kind of breaking down some of his jokes basically, and just kind of enjoying like the mechanics as the, at least in terms of like how well they work, like with turns or something like that, or holding silence. Like I think Chuck in his episode even gave um, credit to you for like most comics, unlike you. And he had to learn it, but they're very uncomfortable with silence. Uh-huh. And 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 he understands and gives clear credit to you because you're a fucking animal, as I was saying before. But like, you have no problem with that long pause silence when most people in social settings, let alone you know comics that haven't learned it yet, is like silence is probably one of your most powerful tools because you are in charge, and that tension 
if you can sense that timing well enough is where like you know whatever the timing was for chuck on that night when the audience was being rough is the, the timing is he gets announced he walks up takes whatever that timing is at the mic penis and then just leaves and it's like perfect you know and it's it's Here, it's so great can i explain why silence is so important go for it because this is something that i've thought of and it's like because the the best thing about what is not said is that it says the most and when you are a comic that is looking to deliver a punchline a mm -hmm. setup and then a punchline mm -hmm. what matters is that you give the audience time to think about the punchline because they're like how does this joke end yeah and if you say what they're thinking then you know maybe they'll give a chuckle give themselves a pat on the back i guess the joke but if you surprise them yes that's how you get that sleight of hand you know yes. that's how you dangle a watch in front of their face and then uh, kick them in the nuts because it is that subversion and that almost magic trick that mm -hmm. makes comedy and funny so electric yeah and it's like you gotta give that silence because then that gives the audience time to think and and i know? and i think the add-on the, the part of that where the the audience is thinking is because their mind's immediately trying to like figure out what's going on but the answer like they know instinctively it's coming but they want to get the answer right so there's this tension of like am i guessing this right so the tension is occurring as they're trying to do exactly what you're saying and then if you have the answer that is that is the surprise because i guess the 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 rules inside of stand-up is that there is always a victim and there's always surprise like those yeah. are like two of the cri two critical ingredients in comedy and yeah that's that's pretty much like the run of it so if they're if that tension is allowed to build via silence is like the easiest way the actual easiest way to do it once you get over the awkward balloon just pop that bitch yeah, now i don't get i don't get how people hate silence i love silence even in conversation you know you ever just stared at somebody it's the best thing ever they just like <laughs> yeah. their thumbs you're calling someone a, you're calling people psychopaths for and you're just like <laughs> Like I, I love this. <laughs> like, I truly do. I. You're reminding me of the. So, uh, my wife and I, and then our friend Frank, we we have fortunately found, and this isn't like miraculous to me. I'm aware of it in quality of friendships, but being alone together, like in that relative silence, is probably some of the best shit in like the human experience. And that's what you're kind of reminding me of, of understanding that if we can, if, even as strangers, if we could be silent together, there is something kind of special about that. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And that silence is, it honestly develops a, a little bit of unexpectedness and trust. Yeah. Because you know, trust is the most important thing with stand-up you, know? <laughs> you know what i just remembered you know how there was the classic sort of this visual trope um where it's like a bunch of dudes just hanging out doing nothing not even talking to each other for like hours at a time and then like the women are like what the fuck are y'all doing and they're like i don't know you know like like nothing's happening but they're just silent calm dudes together and and you're talking and what you're talking about right there i feel is very true is that there's something about being with people that don't need that that and being silent with them 
is kind of like it's like permission to be intimate but in a very yeah. like subtle fully clothed way or whatnot it's like i can be in my own thoughts i can not even pay attention to the world around me with you in the same room and i don't have to worry about like you stealing my my kill in like a hunter gatherer metaphor yeah you know and in, in a way you know if we were to get like i don't know philosophical or whatnot i think it breaks the social game you know yeah. there's often this expectation of the the void needs to be filled you know things need to be filled the, yeah the audio needs to be filled the air needs to be filled and when you don't fill the air and personally i think going up on stage expected to say something and not saying something is the funniest fucking thing ever and i will keep doing it because i adore how funny it is I... but <laughs> it also helps because it gives the audience time to breathe and they go okay yeah you're not trying to bite me well it's it's i i visualize almost like you get up there after any type of comic before you that either one that bombed or one that like destroyed the room you know and then you just sit there and you just stare at them in, a, in like a peaceful but like you still have you still have like your chest out without you fucking hold your hold your posture and it's like uh-huh and it's like inhale exhale from the audience it's like Okay, who's this fucker? You know, and they just start like they start like trying to they do the instinctual human thing. They start evaluating you and getting their first impressions from just how you look. It's like, you know, seventies porn star. Like, what are we doing here, man? Like, what is this? He's kind of goofy with that mustache or whatnot. And then you start, and then you go into whatever the fuck you want to do. And now they're like, and now their curiosity from trying to guess what's the next thing that's happening as like a standard survival mechanism. Now you've already got their attention and curiosity. Yeah, because I I beckon their attention. Yes. You know? When I go up there not saying anything, I go, you, you all, I, I, I got something to say. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a goober. Such a goober fucking line. <laughs> there was a, I love, because I, I made a TikTok about this. It was months ago on like Kill Tony. You know the show, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one guy, apparently, first time in the history of Kill Tony, went up and for his whole minute said nothing. And I was like, this guy gets it. This guy, at least for this moment, is a genius. His next time he showed up, he was retarded and had nothing, no good jokes. But like, uh, yeah. But like, Tony was like, yeah, you were funnier when you didn't say anything. Because uh, <laughs> Tony's, Tony's sometimes just mean on that show, bro. Um and I think he just has to be just to get rid of like the hacks or the or, or or the cretins or whatnot. But like that just it just full stops at me. I was like I part of a challenge that I had for myself until I was started hearing about the the not the, not the decorum but like the respect to the mic is part of me was prepared to go up on a Tuesday or Wednesday at Wise Guys and and test myself how long could I hold silence. And, and and still keep the audience kind of engaged with me, not with anything too physical, but how long could I actually hold a staring silent contest with the audience without, and I think that's the extension of the goal, without disrespecting the room. Because there's that, there's that thing talking to other local comics that like if you've run out of material or whatnot, don't, don't take up the full three minutes. Like, yeah, get like, off. Get off, you know? Um... But part of me, if I was going to be here longer, would be I would start going to the comics that like I have respect for. I was like, and but I think they need to understand that lesson of sounds. Like I need you to go up there. Like it's like no balls or do it. 
go up there and say nothing for the, for the full three minutes. That is, that is like your hard challenge. And if anyone gets mad at you for that, send them to me. Send them to me. Because I want you to understand the weakness that is your fear of the silence. And if you can understand and capture the power of silence in your crafting, you will have like a sledgehammer available to you as a performer. 100%. And I think about that silence, you make a good point. At a certain point, it does become too much for the audience and they just sort of like eh, lose interest. It, yeah, and, that, and I think that they can lose interest, and that's where that, that's a, there's layers to this challenge. Because they're respecting the room and stuff and holding their attention are kind of the same thing. Because yeah. unless the host is all up his own ass and isn't present with the room himself, which can be very valid because he's like coordinating a bunch of names or whatever. I've never done the job, so I don't know how complicated it is. But there's something about if someone's on stage and they are silently holding the audience's attention, just like little shifts, little suggestions – just these little physical things, maybe eye movement, you know, but, just, you know, that, that alone is something that involves, uh, ah, uh, what is it? There's like a, a term, um, that's purposeful. Yes. That silence is purposeful. I feel like when it's disrespect is when somebody just goes up there and they just, there's no purpose with what they're doing. They're not engaged with the audience, and thus the audience is well, not engaged. You and, I, you and I see that in open mics where they're just up there ranting about nonsense. They haven't even structured out their rant. Uh-huh. You know, or they're not – or they're ranting off the top of their head, not, the, not like off the top of their head, not off the top of their heart. Something yeah. like that. There's something where seeing someone legitimately pissed off and just saying wild shit is a way more entertaining thing than someone attempting to rant about Republicans or politics or, or, or ex-girlfriends or shit like that. It's like, it's, it's, there's a local comic that you and I both are aware of that constantly goes up on these open mics and explains shit. And the thing, well, and the I, thing that I've tried to tell... I personally would not like to talk about other... And that's where I'm not naming anyone. That's why I'm not naming anyone. And I, yeah. I want to... I, I, you don't, you don't have to give any comments here, but uh-huh. one of the things that I have told them is that explaining is for podcasts, not like stand-up is for like jokes. You need to figure out how to trim these things down. And my favorite thing that they did at one of the open mics is that they actually had like a genuine moment with the audience. I'm like, that, more of that. Like you need to figure out how to be genuine with the audience and in your performance. Yeah, we're making up bullshit. But you have to be like present enough to be like genuine in like your execution of what you're doing, and that's just maybe me being like really high-minded, artistic about it. <laughs> but there's something that like where everyone gets disengaged when you start trying to run this lecture, and you're you're not succinctly delivering your premise, let alone the connecting parts and the and and the you know the surprise at the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I could I could sort of see that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I kind of, when you mentioned Chuck Fury was like breaking down his joke, I want to break down a joke. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? Um, I, we can actually end, we can, yeah, we're, we got like 10 minutes left. So yeah, we can end on this one. This will be fun. Yeah. Let's break down a joke. I think a joke that immediately comes to mind is my Moby Dick joke. Okay. Remind me of this Uh, one a little bit if you like. I can just perform it right now. Alrighty. Alrighty. (laughs) 
I have a question, you. Yeah? I, have you ever read Moby Dick? No. Moby Dick, the sperm whale named by semen. You ever read Moby Dick? N no, not that particular one. There's a lot of gay subtext <laughs> in Moby Dick. Uh, I didn't realize this until I, I actually read the book recently. And there was this passage in it that was so shocking I had to memorize it. This is a real passage from Moby Dick. The captain slowly made his way to the poop deck. He oils up the floor for maximum slip. After sufficient lubrication, he passionately enters. He then proceeds to have gay sex. With the ship. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you like... Is, is that the end of the joke? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, how would you like to break that one down? Where would you like to start? Because, uh, like, well, one, is that a legitimate, like, quote from the Moby Dick book? Oh, no, of course not. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. I've never read the book. You bitch! <laughs> <laughs> I I love that joke for a few reasons. One, um, Moby Dick, the sperm whale named by semen, is just a great line. Uh, so I like saying that off the bat to get people in the mood to turn off their brain and and laugh at a at a good old cum joke. You know? Yeah, very silly. And, it's very it, it sets up the silly energy. Yeah, uh, how I how I set up the joke is that there's a lot of gay subtext. And Moby Dick, you know, and you think the word gay subtext and you think of like, obviously, I mentioned Moby Dick sperm whale named by semen. People go, aha, you know, there is a bit of gay subtext in Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go on on reciting a passage of things that sound pretty sexual. Yeah. You know, and slightly and believable like, for like what they imagine the writing might have been like or something. Yeah. Because if you've never read Moby Dick, you're like, this guy's full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but they're interested to see, like, okay, what is this guy going to make up about Moby Dick? And then people who have not read Moby Dick, they're like, yeah, I fucking believe you. And then they're like, the captain slowly made his way to the poop deck. Uh, he oils up the floor for maximum, a maximum slip. And then after sufficient lubrication, he passionately enters. I give three lines of a book that you would likely find in a fan fiction, uh, but could also be in a book, possibly. Right. And then for my final line, I say, he then proceeds to have gay sex. <laughs> yes, which is such a... Which is such a... That that is a proper surprise moment because it's so it 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 because I'm I'm sitting there so I've never read Moby Dick right uh -huh. um uh, and and so I'm actually just trusting you out the gate that you're you are actually quoting from the book 
And maybe I'm trying, maybe there's like 5% bullshit meter kind of looking for it, but it's not really there. Like, you know, it's yeah. more like 1%. And then once you finally get to, he has passionate gay sex with the ship. <laughs> it's just like, it's, it's such a great little surprise in like at the end of a silly train, if you will. So yeah. it's, it's such a fun, it is such a fun joke and and what i what i love knowing is that having this with an audience and the tension of like a big room like like at alliance theater that uh-huh. that tension over the crowd and that sense of like murmuring that kind of occurs with a crowd and yeah. and so everyone kind of is like getting on the same page and just so knowing that like once it gets to the like the passionate gay sex like there's just this i can feel the release across a crowd when it like goes well so like yeah, yeah. No, that's that's good quality that's good shit because I, I think like what's great about like a joke is that it is almost a laugh is almost a sigh of relief yeah you know yeah it's like that moment where you're like <laughs> okay yeah yeah you know it's like you well, get strung up but then you end up becoming like fine well have you uh you did not mention you were in any sports uh in your in your history but it may not surprise you that when like doing exercises or like lifting weights, like if you're at a bench press or something like that, uh, like laughter will remove all muscle tension. So like one way, if you were ever like hanging out with like your friends, like lifting weights or whatnot, and you just want to fuck with them, like as like their spotter at the bench is that you just like, you just, you just try to fuck with them and just make them laugh and they're going to lose all muscle tension, but then like you have to catch the bar so they don't kill themselves. Oh yeah. And it's just, so that's, that's what I end up thinking about for, for uh, for in the same in the same idea basically is that that sigh of relief, the tension's now gone. This, like, because also how you're performing those lines is dramatic. That's kind of where I wouldn't call it like a long term why for why I, I do stand up. I think I just I, I always I've always loved performance art, um, and so maximizing a certain performance art is kind of like my Moby Dick to my big white whale. Um, but what I think about doing is like, what I'm thinking about in my very, very early, like stand up career is like, I need to actually just get good at telling a story. Cause I've always socially been very bad at it. I'm very rambly if that hasn't been made apparent in the last two hours. Um, but if I can learn how to just tell like just a good story that I can figure out how to stick like the dick jokes or the weird shit or the, or the twist and turns. And so I can, and so that's where like, you know, have you seen my like Hulu bit? I have The, the Hulu ads bit. Like I take that as like my first joke that I've actually gotten nailed down in just some sort of good sense because it does, it's actually like a good succinct story that has, it's like two turns at the end, basically like a turn yeah. in the tag. I think like, you know, I started off stand up like writing whole bits and like stories and yeah. then I ended up transitioning into just doing very short jokes mm-hmm. uh, over time because I found a great exercise is okay how do i tell a joke in the least amount of time because yeah. not only does it help for like an open mic right but it's also it helps you be able to trim the fat because often i'll hear jokes and then i end up hearing the whole joke and i'm like man you could have cut like 80 percent of that and just kept the good part and i would have laughed the same (laughs) that's where i remember and and i have this now but i I remember being at so many of the open mics in prior years before i you know gotten found how to be consistent with it and i listened to people i'm like you have a great premise 
like your opening line the premise is oh great oh my gosh i but one you of the most frustrating things like you have a great premise but then you like lecture or you get really excessive with it and so like i i'm intimidated by like writing like a really short joke at least in how i framed what you just said but one of the things that i have been focusing on in terms of what's the most distilled boiled down version of this like next time i go out with like the hulu story is like i might try to speed run it and just figure out like what are the actual hard beats of it because the joke can take a lot of time and and the payoff can sort of can sort of work but there's a version of i bet there's a version of my hulu ads joke where it could be like four lines instead of you know 10 lines or whatever it is now because i don't exactly have it written out and so that's and that's that's usually like my my big thing i know is the challenge as a very talkative extrovert is like how do i actually pull like this paragraph into like two sentences mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i mean i i've learned from experience just talking with people as well you mm -hmm. know they'll tell me this whole story and i'll be like you know, you didn't need to talk about going to the grocery store that day and getting like milk. That was completely irrelevant. You yeah. Know, just shave that off and nothing yeah. would have changed. It's yeah. hard to know what to keep and what to not. But I think I really learned from doing my first gig and watching the recording and been like, there were three jokes that did solid. I could have just done those three jokes. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, maybe it would have been better. Yeah, it's like focus on the the efficacy rather than the quality. You know, I I love comics that uh, efficacy rather than the quantity. Okay, yeah, like the number of jokes you have in a set versus exactly. Yeah, yeah. Be because you know that is what matters, and, and even if I'm up there for not a lot of time, you know, if the audience wasn't promised like an hour of me, you know. They'll they'll leave with a with a good time, right? And, you know that momentum is able to carry over and help the next guy at the mic or the the next guy at the show. Yeah, and honestly, it's like I get really frustrated when people have this amazing premise, and this is like this could be such a good joke, but their premise is. The 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 joke yeah the, the, their yeah. premise i i find that if you have an interesting premise it is often better to make it the punchline rather okay. than the setup okay you know at least in my experience like when i have a thought that's just funny yeah you know it's like that's the punchline and either it has no setup or it has a f a few setup but don't make that premise the setup because mm -hmm. then you blew your load too early. You know, the audience is expecting something funnier than the setup and they never get that payoff. Okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. This is where I think I'm too, I, I'm too young in the career and haven't, and not, I haven't seen enough open mics or whatnot. There's some part of me where it's like, I've seen premises that, I think I've seen on Kill Tony where people will like open up as like I'm clearly like a straight white man or whatnot, and it's just like it doesn't go anywhere, dude. Like that's a very boring premise to set up, and you got to figure out how to actually how do you actually turn 
you into the victim or something like that, because that's what you're attempting to do. And you surprising everyone as you're the rightful victim would be a much better end to whatever this half-ass joke that you're attempting. You know what I'm saying? It could be a solid beginning, but mm-hmm. I think it needs a different approach than what I see usually with being that, done. Yeah, at least at least with like that premise yeah. as like a soft ex- as a weak example that I'm pulling out right now. But yeah, because in, in most scenarios, like I find that if they just switched the the setup and the punchline, mm-hmm. it honestly would have made the joke a bit better. You know? I think I've heard like Bo or Tom or something like that realize that while they were working on a joke and realizing that if they actually just inverse the joke, it actually like worked way better somehow, you know? Yeah. Because so. it's like, again, that like that setup is like, you let them breathe. Cause like, if you start off with something unexpected, like let that just be a punchline. Right. Mm-hmm. Unless you have even more unexpected things on top of it. Mm-hmm. Let it be a punchline, you know. Yeah. Oftentimes, I'll just say something fucking random and stupid because it's funny. And <laughs> what I like, and at that point, it, well, at that point, it's a it's a standalone pronouncement. Yeah, you know, and that that could just be funny just for the sake of funny. It's not even that it's a joke. It's yeah. just you know, and and like fighting terms, it's like a jab, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to like a whole setup and punchline joke was just like a like an uppercut. Or like a yeah, like or a, a combo, maker. like a like a combo kind of thing. I yeah, guess. exactly. Yeah, you know when when I say something, I can't tell like, if either of us have actually had any like fighting combat training experience. I've had none, but I play fighting games, and that's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Alrighty, we're gonna wrap up there. Thank you again, Nami, for uh, coming on the Jailhouse Parlor podcast and everything. I'm gonna go yeah, ahead and get us out of here. Uh, did you have anything? You, did you have anything that you wanted to plug socials wise before we go? Um, if you are in the Salt Lake City area, uh, check out local art scenes. You know, check out open mics, check out uh, improv, check out whatever. Because if you are looking for a home, you might find it with uh, the the bunch of misfits that have sort of gathered and found a found a home being creative so check it out i can give a hear here to that one thank you sir let's get out of here